Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two in our series on headless gods and monsters. Uh, this is a topic that we had talked about getting into for the Halloween season, but we never got around to it. So here we are uh, turning things in late. Um, so in, in part one, we talked about the biological origins of the bilaterian head and about what factors probably drove our ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago to start concentrating nerve cells and sense organs and mouth parts all on one end of the body. And of course, this is the development that would eventually turn into our faces and our brains. We also talked about stories of gods with no heads from cultures around the world. And today we're back to talk about some more headless ghosts, monsters, and dubious historical claims of people who naturally have no heads or have heads located inside their torsos. Yeah, as we discussed in the last episode, um, no matter what direction you approach the topic from, it it ends up being clear that like this idea of something without a head, it captivates us. It forces us to think and rethink uh, various ideas about like what a person is, what an entity is, uh, what uh, where, where volition comes from and so forth. So, yeah, getting here into the, the idea of uh, like, roughly speaking, the diabolical headless, there are any number of headless monsters and ghosts in global traditions uh, we're probably not going to cover, you know, we're definitely not going to cover all of them. We may leave out uh, by error some uh, some key examples. And so if we do skip such a headless entity uh, from folklore, mythology, write in. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know, especially if it's a situation where head and or body continue to live on afterwards. I guess you could roughly throw Medusa into that category, though we did a whole series on Medusa back in the day. So refer back to those if you want to hear about Medusa's head. 
I think it's also, um, you know, I think fair that we might presume that a lot of these different ideas have to do with, uh, at least in, concerning some of like the ghosts we're going to be talking about and so forth, taboos against the burial of incomplete remains, also thoughts about beheading as a form of execution. Uh, so keeping all that in mind, uh, I thought we'd bring up the, the first one here. And this is this is a pretty big one, especially uh, when we start thinking about things like uh, the Headless Horseman from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Um, we have a creature from the Scottish Highlands. Uh, the name means the headless trunk. And uh, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, but Colun Gun Chen. It's said to haunt the Isle of Skye, and it leaves women and children alone, but if it happens upon a male traveler at night, especially um, um, uh, anyone who's out there on their own, well, then it's going to brutally attack. In Dictionary of Celtic Mythology, James MacKillop describes it as a form of boken or hobgoblin. He writes that it's often thought of as a uh, tutelary or protector spirit of the McDonald's of Marar in the Western Highlands. Is there a commonly understood explanation of why this ghost is headless, or is it just kind of, that's the way it is? Uh, I'm not aware of a particular uh, origin story here, but I could be missing something. By the way, he also writes of the Irish death coach and points out that the driver and or the horses are sometimes described as headless. And indeed, sometimes it was called the headless coach, and it is sometimes driven by the headless phantom, Dullahan. Dullahan. Yeah. So the Dullahan is the headless horseman of Irish folklore. And this one is, I think, often held up as the clear inspiration for the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. McCullough describes it as indeed often riding a headless horse or driving the coach that we already mentioned. And sometimes that coach is made out of bones. There are a number of grisly details regarding the coach that sometimes are left out uh, of of retellings. Um, It actually does have a ghoulish head. Uh, that has been removed from its body, uh, described as a great chunk of moldy cheese with darting eyes. Wow, that is evocative. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, it, it makes it sound like, okay, the, the head is definitely dead, I guess. But again, supernatural being, uh, so I guess anything is fair game. The Dullahan is said to to take this moldy cheese head off for shock and may throw it around like a ball. So one can imagine, you know, sort of like bouncing it off the shoulders or something or dribbling it like a basketball. Oh, this reminds me of something I read that I, I couldn't find a great source for this, but allegedly the the ghost of the uh, English Archbishop William Laud, who is believed to haunt St. John's College in uh, Oxfordshire, is uh, is said to sometimes uh, either kick his head around like a soccer ball or bowl <laughs> with his own head. Uh, but like I said, I couldn't find a great looking source for that. But that that is a claim I've read attested. I mean, the human imagination just can't help but go there, right? Yeah. Now, you might, hearing this tale of the Dullahan, you might think, well, if this character comes riding around, I've got to see this. This sounds uh, impressive. Well, you were advised not to. Um, if, if he comes riding around, don't peek out through a crack in the door or the window uh, because he has a whip. Sometimes it's said to be crafted from a human spinal column, and he will crack it at you, and if he catches your eyes, it'll blind you. Ooh, why am I calling to mind like an evil version of Santa Claus who catches the children <laughs> peeking on, you know, on Christmas? It's kind of like that, you know? I mean, there's, and I think we can all kind of relate to that idea of the supernatural. Like, it's one thing to hear tales of the supernatural, but then do you dare see it? Because once you've seen it, you've crossed over, right? 
you're no longer on this side of the stories, you're on the other side. And what does that mean for you? Mm. Um, there are also tales that if he catches you looking, peeking out the door, he'll just ride up and throw a basin of blood in your face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but but still, all that being said, like he's still just riding by. The worst thing that could happen is that you'll hear those um, those those, those hoof um, uh, falls stop. You'll hear that that he has uh, stopped outside your house. That he's lingering outside your house, which of course spells death for those inside or for someone inside. Like he is not just passing through; he has arrived. Now, I wasn't able to find as many sources on this, but. Uh, it is said that there is a modern Japanese urban legend variation of the Dullahan. The Kubanashi rider or headless rider doesn't ride a horse, but rides a motorcycle. The story is that his head was cut off by piano wire spanning a roadway, a detail that has been connected to the 1974 Australian outlaw biker film Stone, which was then re- released in Japan in 1981 and mm-hmm. would have inspired this urban legend, apparently. I have not seen this one. I don't know if you're familiar with Stone. No, I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds like a very Mad Max kind of detail. Yeah, and in fact, it has uh, Hugh Keyes Byrne in it, uh, the guy who played Morton Joe in the, um, the the most recent Mad Max film and also played what was like Toe Cutter, I think is his character, yeah. in the original Mad Max. The villain in the first one and the, the fourth one, but different characters. Yeah. Now, McKillop also recounts a tale of a beheading game involving the hero Kukulin. Uh Now, the beheading game, we've, I think we've talked about this before on the show. This is a literary trope, uh, perhaps best known for its place in Arthurian legend uh, concerning the Green Knight. Uh, basically, the game consists of this. You cut my head off, and then I cut yours off. Sounds like an easy contest uh, until you realize that your opponent can get back up and walk around without a head and will indeed be back to cut yours off later on. This is central in the the Arthurian story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain is the one who answers the challenge. So uh, the the knights of the round table are feasting, I believe, on Christmas Day or it's around Christmas. And uh, the Green Knight, this man who is very much identified with nature and seems to be some kind of symbol of like paganism, this Green Knight figure comes in and he, yeah, he he insults all of the knights and he challenges them to this game, this beheading game, and they're allowed to behead him first. So Sir Gawain, the young up and comer, uh, is like, yeah, okay, I'll do it, yeah, and he cuts the Green Knight's head off, and the Green Knight is fine. He picks his own head up. He's like, okay, now I'll do that to you a year from now today. So you got to come find me at the Green Chapel. And so there's like, it's a morality story about honor and all that, that uh, Sir Gawain is like, well, am I going to go do it? And he does. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot more to dissect there. But at heart, you do have a story of a headless or at least temporarily headless being. I actually, uh, Rachel and I just this past month watched for the first time that uh, that recent Sir Gawain movie that they put out, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, and I thought it was great. Oh, cool. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard great things. I've only ever watched the one in which Sean Connery plays the Green Knight. Oh, no, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good Green Knight. Um, Now, in looking around for other examples of of headless beings, um, uh, there was one I ran across that uh, I wanted to bring up that uh, uh, extends from uh, Navajo or uh, Dene traditions. Uh, Specifically, uh, it's called the Thilgeth or Thilgeth. It's a form of Anye monster, sometimes translated, uh, especially back in the early 20th century, as alien gods. Um, though I'm, I feel like that maybe that terminology could be 
confusing now. I'm not sure. Um, but some sort of like gods from the outside, I guess. In uh, her monster books, Carol Rose describes them as primal monsters, the offspring of wicked women who brought fear and misery into the world, the sons of uh, sun and water, and I believe these are the Navajo hero twins, slayed these monsters. Um, and according to Rose, their offspring, however, lived on, the monster's offspring lived on to keep cold, famine, old age, and poverty alive in the world, even if these like more primal fears had been defeated by the heroes. Mm. I was also reading that the monsters were slain by Naye Nezgani. Uh, this is a, a, a mythical hero from Navajo um, uh, lore that uh, is a monster slayer, and I believe is one of the Navajo twins referenced earlier. Um, Gerald E. Levy, in his book In the Beginning, the Navajo Genesis, lists the translated names of the monsters killed by the slayer as Big Yi, um, Horned Monster, Rock Monster Eagle, Kicks Off Rocks, and the Eye Killers. I believe Horned Monster is Thielgeth or Thielged, uh, but there's no mention of headlessness here. Hmm. However, uh, Thielged, Delgeth, or Thielgeth is listed as a quote-unquote hairy headless antelope on the website um, native language, that's native-languages.org, which is a nonprofit dedicated to the preservation and promotion of endangered American Indian languages. Um, so that leads me to believe, well, maybe this is some sort of headless entity, at least in some tellings. Hmm. Hairy headless antelope. Interesting. Yeah. So just another example that, you know, this idea of some sort of like headless entity, be it, uh, uh animal or human in form, like the, it, it's gonna, it's gonna touch a nerve. Like there is something unnatural and dreadful about it, uh, that there, that we're gonna, we can't help but connect with monstrosity. So I was looking for uh, for a good book that compiled stories about headless ghosts, and I found a chapter in a book by the uh, well-known skeptic and paranormal investigator Joe Nickel called uh, – the book is called The Science of Ghosts, Searching for Spirits of the Dead, uh, published by Prometheus Books in 2012. And there's a chapter in this book called Headless Ghosts I Have Known. Uh, so at the beginning of this chapter – Nickel points out a few just kind of interesting contradictions, I, some of which I don't know if I've ever considered before. One is the idea that, you know, there are certain kinds of ghost realists, people who think that ghosts are real, uh, independent, external phenomena, uh, and that cer certain of these ghost realists assert that a ghost is a form of physical energy peculiar to humans or perhaps to animals that survives death and remains in the environment. And yet, for some reason, ghosts are almost always perceived not only as manifestations of the human or animal body, but dressed as they might have been during life. So, like, if this energy exists and persists, it also seems to manifest inanimate objects, such as, like, clothing and uniforms and jewelry, other non-living objects that ghosts would sometimes carry with them. That's a good point. Ghosts tend to wear clothes. Along the same lines, some ideas about ghosts as real external phenomena explain them as some kind of lingering mental projection of the original person that persists after death, though this has interesting tension with the, the number of stories there are about headless ghosts, since mental phenomena are pretty well established to depend mostly on the brain, 
it would have to be a, a now dead brain projecting not itself into the future, but some kind of three dimensional representation of the part of the body that does not contain it, which is kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, so uh, those little observations aside, he, he goes on to document several types of stories of headless ghosts. Uh, in the United States, there are apparently a number of popular stories about soldiers from the American Civil War, like being uh, decapitated by cannon fire and then wandering the battlefield forevermore as headless ghosts. He also mentions the various headless ghosts associated with the Tower of London in England, including several historical figures who were beheaded on the orders of Henry VIII, only a subset of which were his wives, uh, the most famous of the Tower Ghosts being Anne Boleyn, but uh, there are also just some other enemies of Henry that end up there. But one of the stories that Nickel records that really uh, stuck with me involves criminals in medieval Germany. So there is a place in the Rhine Valley called the Reichenstein Castle where a legend says that a headless ghost sometimes wanders in the chapel adjoining the castle. And he describes a, a visit that he, he had to this castle uh, to look into the legend. The origin story goes back to the 13th century when this castle was the base of operations for a band of what he calls robber knights, I think, you know, fierce bandit horsemen. Uh, and then to quote from Nickel, and this is uh, in part he is quoting from Dennis William Houck's International Dictionary of Haunted Places. So when the quote comes in, that's what it is. But Nickel writes, quote, in 1282, they were captured, whereupon their leader, Dietrich von Hohenfels, entreated Emperor Rudolf von Habsburg to spare his nine sons. The emperor stated that Dietrich was to be beheaded, but with his sons lined in a row, everyone he could afterward run past would be spared. When the executioner's sword fell, quote, Dietrich's head rolled to the ground, but his bloodied torso stood erect and lunged forward, stumbling and swaying, until it passed every one of his sons. Finally, the headless body fell to its knees, a fountain of blood shooting high in the air where its head had been. The sons were spared, and afterward, on the execution site, the repentant family erected the St. Clement Chapel. According to Hauk, Dietrich's headless ghost is sometimes seen inside the chapel. Also, quote, Dietrich is buried on the property, and his red sandstone marker depicts a knight in armor with no head. Mm. But Nickel points out that there are several issues with this story. Uh, so first of all, this grave marker described, wherever it is, it, it is now lost, or was at least to the time he, he was writing this book. Uh, though there is an account of a visit to the site by Victor Hugo, where Hugo claimed that the grave marker was from the 14th century, not the 13th, and that Dietrich's name was not on it. Also, the account does not square with the history of the bandit knights of the castle, uh, where apparently the more reliable sequence of facts seems to be that Dietrich actually escaped and his companions, the other robber knights, were, uh, were in fact executed. They were hanged uh, from trees in the Rhine Valley. And the basic outline of this folktale about Dietrich seems to go back in earlier form to a story about a 14th century German pirate and privateer named Klaus Stortebecker, who was captured and executed for his crimes in the year uh, 1401. Nickel writes, quote, Kneeling before the executioner, he proposed a deal. Quote, all those companions should be reprieved whom he could manage to walk by after being beheaded. This way he saved the lives of 11 pirates before the malicious executioner tripped him. 
<laughs> that's, that's a dirty trick. Yeah. Now, this talk of uh, headless privateers and so forth, of course, this brings to mind a, a, a modern retelling of this sort of story that uh, I don't think we've mentioned so far. And that, of course, is uh, Warren Zevon's 1978 song, Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner, which um, is, an, is an excellent song, uh, wonderfully weird um, uh, lyrics, a great ballad of um of, of headless being uh, and revenge and so forth uh but very much from this the, in this sort of vein you know uh in this in instead of a pirate an international mercenary right and so there are there are kind of like these story forms that just keep reappearing in stories about different people in different times and places in history and nickel ultimately thinks that the story about dietrich that he came across is probably grafted from this original story about stordebecker but in either case nickel argues that the story is implausible like it probably did not actually happen based on what we know about physiology like you know a chicken might be uh, able to run around or walk around a bit after decapitation but he, he does not think that a human would do the same yeah and it raises all sorts of questions about well how was was he standing when the head was cut off like how do you get ready for this attempted lurch across the execution yard to save other pirates that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer there. Uh, but one more tangent I went on from Nichols' book. Later in the book, there's a short section on ghost dogs where Nickel brings up the English legend, sometimes known as Black Shuck, a, a spectral hound uh, with sort of localized uh, incarnations or tellings in different regions of England, such as Devon, Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk. And this ghost dog is said to have black hair and stand as large as a calf, quote, sporting glowing eyes, even when he is described as headless. Mm. And I loved that. The image of a canine body that has glowing eyes despite having no head. Now, can you have eyes if you have no head? Well, I think if you're a dog, the answer is probably no, at least plausibly <laughs> no, without some kind of sci-fi Frankenstein thing going on. But if you're another kind of animal, the answer is absolutely. Yes, you can have eyes without a head. As weird as it sounds, there are animals exactly like that. Just one example I would like to briefly talk about are uh, scallops. Oh, scallops, mm. scallops. Do you, which way do you say it, Rob? Scallops? Scallops. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. A little further back in the, yeah. Let's say scallops. Folks, if you are near a computer or, or are safely able to look at your phone right now, just do yourself a favor and look up scallop eyes. It's like something straight out of a monster movie. There are <laughs> real unedited photos of, of scallop eyes that look like they cannot be from nature, but they are. Uh, the, so you will sometimes see the shell will be just slightly open. You know, it's mostly closed, but there's a gap in between. And the inside of the shell is lined with a tissue that just has these these uh, pale blue dots all along it, which clearly do read as eyes for some reason. I, they don't just look like dots. I mean, it looks like they're looking at you. And then in between that, there are these tissues that kind of lock together with these uh, spiky hairs that looks like the, the world's widest monster mouth with infinite teeth. Yeah, they're, they're, they're terrifying. They also, they're so bright in some of these pictures too. They, they feel like it should be a Legend of Zelda enemy, you know? Yes, that's really good. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you can imagine the, the uh, treasure chest popping up when you defeat the scallop. Hey, and if it's in one of the new Zelda games, surely you would end up getting to, to cook with, with the scallop from it, right? 
That's right. I hear all about, I, I, I don't play the game myself, but my son does. And he tells me all about the different meats you cook. And then, of course, there's not just going to be one. There's going to be about eight different versions of it, right, with different uh, head features. Yeah, and you combine the body parts from the different ones to, to make different kinds of meals. They, that, that cooking mechanic is very pleasing. It's always a nice little surprise when you mix something new and it does make a dish. <laughs> but anyway, scallops are interesting in that their, their visual anatomy differs substantially from ours. Scallops can, of course, have hundreds of eyes per organism. We only have two. And while our eyes use curved, transparent lenses to focus light onto the retina, scallops focus light instead with tiny mirrors made of crystals of guanine. And if guanine's ringing a bell for you, yes, that is one of the four bases found in DNA. Uh, that's the one that pairs with cytosine. Strange fact I just learned while preparing for this episode, guanine gets its name from guano, as in like bat dung or bird dung, because the compound was found in great quantities in guano. Uh, but in its crystalline form, guanine, uh, it forms the, the iridescent component in fish scales and other kind of pearly reflective surfaces in parts of animal bodies, uh, sometimes in reptiles too, like I believe uh, chameleons, you know, have guanine. But in the, in the case of scallops, uh, scallop eyes focus light onto the light-sensitive cells, their equivalent of retinas, with reflective mirrors made of segmented guanine crystals. I think they're actually square-shaped crystal plates. And there's an interesting comparison to be made to technology, to human-made telescopes, because while the earliest telescopes, like those used by Galileo, used transparent glass lenses to focus light into the eyepiece, kind of like our eyes do, the most advanced telescopes today actually tend to use curved mirrors instead of lenses as the primary light-gathering surface. Wow, that's incredible. But if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's just go Google scallop eyes. Yes, yes. It, these are amazing images. And it does feel like they're looking right at you. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right. At this point in the uh, episode, I want to turn back to this idea that we discussed a little bit in, in last episode, this idea of headless creatures, but with faces on their chest. So uh, we, we looked at, a, at some examples from like um, Chinese mythology and Hindu mythology, uh, where you had uh, creatures that have no head, but have, um, but, but the faces found a way. You know, the nipples are, have become eyeballs, and the belly is a great big mouth. Mm -hmm. The most famous Western versions of these, though, the, 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 the versions of these uh, uh, sort of monstrous ideas, uh, the ones that cast the longest shadow, are generally referred to, uh, they're referred to by various names, by, uh, particularly by authors in antiquity, but then going on up through the Middle Ages and so forth. Uh, one of the names is the Blemies, another is the uh, cephali, uh, which just means headless. But uh, many of the names that they were uh, that they were that were attributed to them were actual peoples uh, that were the names of actual peoples that were said to live in remote parts of the known world, or I guess more specifically, on the edges of what was the known world for the individuals creating maps, writing these various travel logs, and speculating about what sort of life and what sort of peoples there were. Uh, on the far-flung corners of the world. And while it's certainly possible that these stories could be based on, you know, misinterpreted or misreported observations, things like that that we'll get into, you also really can't help but uh, notice that there would be a natural temptation when describing people who live, like, in the farthest place, place away from you that you can imagine, that maybe they, they are really different somehow, maybe, like, they don't even have heads. Yeah, 
Yeah, and that's that's basically the idea. Yeah, the, 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 and there were other monstrous races to be sure, uh, and you can find various illustrations of these in various books from the the time periods in question. They they include not only people with um, faces on their their chests and no head, but also one legged people that hop around on one leg and that sort of thing. The so called monstrous races. But this this idea goes way back, and yeah, it will unwrap some of the ideas that have been. Uh, put forth as to why these concepts emerged and why they had such stickiness in the human imagination. And I, and I do think the human imagination, as always, should be, um, we should keep that in mind as, as being one of the, the primary factors here, like people thinking about, again, like thinking about the edge of the world, thinking about other planets. Um, we're dealing with sort of a gray area where we can just inject pure imagination. But then on top of that, there's the normal telephone game of translations and accounts and some other factors we'll get into. Mm-hmm. So the Greeks called them the acephali or the headless ones. They were also known again as the blemies, which was the name given to an actual people who seemed to have lived in lower Nubia during the 7th century BCE through the 8th century CE. Um, so to, to be clear, the actual people that lived there had heads and were not monsters. They were people, uh, but uh, this is the idea that gets uh, passed down through these various writings. Herodotus indirectly mentions the acephali in the 5th century BCE work, uh, Histories, among other exaggerated foreign peoples with inhuman descriptions. Um, uh, he refers to, quote, the headless men that have their eyes in their chests. During the 1st century CE, uh, Pliny the Elder wrote about them as well in the Natural History. Um, uh, once more uh, um, uh, referring to them among other exaggerated and or, um, you know, strange accounts of supposed foreign peoples in the far-flung f- uh, corners of the world, writing, quote, in translation, of course, the Blumier are said to have no heads, their mouths and eyes being seated in their breasts. And you'll find various accounts like this repeated through the Middle Ages and into the Age of Discovery. Uh, you can look at works such as The Travels of Sir John Mandeville, uh, the writings of Sir Walter Raleigh, and so forth. There are just more numerous to mention here uh, in this episode. To be clear, you're saying some of the other, these like medieval travel writings described people with implausible anatomy that were, you know, this is not really how people's bodies were. But for some reason, in some place, these authors would say, yeah, there are people here who they don't have a head or they have one leg or something. Yeah. And I and I gather that, you know, there are a mix of things going on here. On one level, it's like, well, uh, you know, uh, Pliny the Elder wrote about it, so we're going to repeat that. Of course, you know, Pliny, as we've discussed in the show, Pliny has a lot of interesting things to share, uh, mm-hmm. some of which um, have truth, uh, have an element of truth to them, or are, you know, uh, accounts of what's happening in the real world. Others are things that he heard and were passed down and uh, don't relay any historic truth, but do tell us something about, like, the mindset of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get back into the question of where these stories came from and what they may have originally meant, you know, what things could have led to these interpretations and and, uh, and tales, it's also I think it's also worthwhile to think about their staying power and usefulness in conveying different meanings. Um, Some, but not all of which relate to like a general monsterization of the other. Um, and, And again, I think it's also one of those things where it's it's imaginative and weird enough and that alone 
is a reason that people keep coming back to it. And just sort of like the, the, some of the ideas we discussed in the first episode, like we think about creatures with heads and we take it for granted. And then you're presented with a form that's lacking a head, but it's still alive. Like, what does it mean? You can't help but interpret and have these various symbolic interpretations of metaphoric interpretations of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was looking around for some, some insight on this general topic. Um, as pointed out by Husband and Gilmore House in The Wild Man, Medieval Myth and Symbolism, you had cases like that of 13th century Flemish writer Thomas de Contempore, who compared such headless men to lawyers um, who, uh, quote, misled clients into unnecessary legal processes and grew fat on inordinate fees. <laughs> I love that because I, I can't help but imagine one of these various lawyer billboards you see everywhere on the highways. But instead of having that, you know, smiling dude in a suit, uh, what if you had a belly faced man on them? What if Bob Odenkirk's face was was on his chest? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, husband and Gilmore House also point out that the headless man has also been presented as an image of humility. Uh, this was this is apparently from the 13th or 14th century text, Gesta Romanorum. I uh, consulted this text and I did find uh, the line I think they're uh, referring to. Quote, humility is signified by the absence of the head and the placing of the face in the breast. The text also includes this bit of wisdom. No creature is so monstrous, no fable so incredible, but that the monkish writers could give it a moral form and extract from its crudities and quiddities some moral or religious lesson. Ah, this comes back to something we've talked about on the show before, that um, that a lot of times when you get these older accounts, uh, especially in, say, like a medieval Christian context of uh, of anomalous beings, uh, they were almost always in the the texts where they're documented used to illustrate some kind of moralistic teaching. And that should in some way color your understanding of like what purpose these stories were serving. Yeah. Yeah. This idea of um, of taking a monstrous form, using it to relay a point, or as this quote is kind of alluding to, like, it's like the, the monk cannot help when presented with a strange form to come up with some sort of theological argument for what it represents. Yeah. Um, like one, one example that I've brought up on the show before is uh, this, this um, creature that shows up in some medieval sources. Uh, sorry, I don't remember the sources offhand, but I've referred to it in a monster fact before of Christ uh, with a long neck and bird's head. And the idea here uh, I remember reading is that uh, it's like, be more like Christ, be more like an individual with a long neck and a bird's head because then the words that rise up from your heart, well, they have longer to, they have, a, they have more distance to cover before they reach your lips, before you can speak them. Uh, and therefore, uh, it is wise and Christ-like uh, to, um, to, to approach the world this way and so forth, you know. But then on the other end, it's just an amusing looking illustration as well, because yeah. it's clearly supposed to be Jesus, but he has a bird's head. You know, it just raises questions where... I realize that my intuitions are about what somebody would or would not consider sacrilegious are not always correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many examples of that. Uh, just depictions of Christ, uh, like the, the, the three-faced Christ that you saw that was sometimes used as a, as a way to um, visually um, describe some aspect of the Holy Trinity, but also was then viewed as potentially heretical uh, by others and so forth. Anyway, coming back to the idea of creatures with no heads and faces on their torso, I guess one of the big questions 
that that comes to mind looking at these images is, you know, where does this idea even come from? Because it's one thing to realize that once the idea is introduced, it has a stickiness to it. We can't help but think about it and come up with reasons for 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 why it could be or what it means. Uh, and looking around, there seem to be a number of of theories, some convincing, some far less convincing. And it's as always, it's one of these cases where I feel like you could cobble various ideas together and possibly get at some truth, though I would be very hesitant to take even the better uh, theories and lean too heavily than, uh, on them as like a, an all-inclusive theory. Like this is the reason somebody described uh, people um, on a distant um, uh, continent as uh, having no head and having a face on their chest. So the first theory I wanted to bring up, and this is when you, you've seen a number of sources, is the idea that these would have been essentially accounts based on uh, limited observation of certain groups of people, certain tribes or whatnot from a distance, such as from a ship off of a foreign coast. And, uh, you know, I imagine this alone without the aid of spy glasses could potentially be enough. Uh, but then the idea is that this could have been compounded by modes of dress, such as, um, you know, something worn on the head or specifically the use of some sort of a hood. Hmm. From a distance, it was apparently argued by 17th century German author Adam Lurius uh, and others that hooded figures might conceivably be interpreted as headless. So if you had a group of people that traditionally wore some sort of headgear, a hood or what have you, then from a distance, you might say, hey, look at those people standing on that shore. They appear to have no head. Write it down. Maybe draw a picture. We'll bring that back um, at, the, at the end of the voyage. Okay, I could imagine that, but along the same lines as somebody seeing and misinterpreting clothing or, or adornment of the body, you would also have to wonder about somebody seeing and misinterpreting somebody with just a particular posture. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one you read about as well. In fact, John Bostock and H.T. Riley chime in on this in their liner notes to their uh, translation of Pliny's Natural History. Uh, something you might think of is, I think of it as like the warrior stance theory here. Um, and basically, they point out, quote, from a statement in the Ethiopica of uh, Heliodorus, Marcus suggests that the story as to the Blemier having no heads arose from the circumstance that on the invasion of the Persians, they were in the habit of falling on one knee and bowing the head to the breast, by which means, without injury to themselves, they afforded a passage to the horses of the enemy. Now, I have to admit that is a sentence I do not fully understand exactly what they're describing there, but I take it to mean that there's some sort of um, like a uniform uh, posture that uh, certain individuals were said to take on as some sort of like a defensive posture, a warrior stance or what have you, that could be interpreted even for, you know, from a distance as being people with no head. I, I guess you could imagine a similar thing being that somebody without experience of seeing uh warriors in a phalanx formation might say, oh, wow, these people, you know, they have a uh, hundred legs and a and hundred yeah. spear arms and they're one massive organism because you're unfamiliar with the way that they're grouping their bodies and, and what, what they're doing. Yeah. Now th that, that leads to another, I think, important thing here is the, is, is again, coming back to that telephone game of accounts and the idea of one source speaking 
uh, not speaking literally, literally about something and then it being interpreted as a literal description of something. So you can imagine somebody saying, yes, it was like they were this beast with 100 feet um, and, uh, and, and a shell all around them. And then, you know, at the end of the telephone game of accounts, someone is saying they literally use large insects in their bat. Uh-huh. And so you see some variations on that with uh, with dissection of the of, of the, the the headless um, uh, entity. For instance, uh, 17th century Danish physician Thomas um, Bartholin argued that it was a metaphor that ends up being taken literally, in that the people described uh, were, for one reason or another. Uh, thought to be headless in the non-literal sense. So perhaps they couldn't be reasoned with, or they otherwise conducted themselves in a you know a difficult-to-understand fashion, what have you. Uh, and then it just gets translated into, oh, yes, and they had no heads. So what begins maybe is more like a, a metaphorical, ethnocentric uh, derogation of some other group of people turns in, is misinterpreted as a literal statement about their bodies. Right. So a lot of these interpretations are also like essentially saying, okay, clearly these are not creatures that exist, but there has to be some middle ground. There has to be something kind of like it. And you see a number of these that I think you could classify as sunken head theories. The idea that you wouldn't be dealing with someone with a face on their chest, but what if you had a group of people that had for one reason, one hypothetical reason or another, a greatly shortened neck or even a seeming absence of a neck? So assuming that, uh, I guess, giving more credence to the original claims as saying like, well, they really did see some people who they were describing in a in a more reliable fashion than whatever we were just talking about. Uh, but there's some there's some explanation for it. I'm, I'm often skeptical of explain of, uh, explanatory attempts to explain historical claims like this, but let's see what they say. Well, a lot of it ends up coming down to situations where you had individuals like 18th century Jesuit naturalist, uh, um, F, um, uh, Lafitan. Uh, there's also Johannes de late, uh, a 17th century geographer. And basically like a lot of their arguments come down to the same thing saying, Okay, well, here's this thing in these travel logs and these accounts. And look here, we have evidence, we have accounts of people with uh, some sort of a sunken head uh, situation. Like, uh, and some of these seem to be more on the, in the, along the lines of, well, here are some individuals with, with really thick necks, or they have, you know, more highly developed muscles that, yeah, you could lean into some description of them having a sunken head or less of a neck. Uh, but I don't know. It seems kind of a flimsy argument to make. I mean, likewise, you'll see allusions to various um, congenital conditions um, where, uh, and, uh, like, uh, you know, a person will be born with um, fused neck bones or a shortened neck. Uh, you know, accounts of this from the ancient world are known. I think there, there are even some controversial theories that um, King Tut uh, could have had some variation on one of these syndromes. But there are a whole host of theories as to what may or may not have been going on with his personal health. Mm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm intuitively a little more skeptical of, of explanations like this for where these claims came from. Yeah. And then likewise, you have other examples where people are bringing up birth defects and uh, various, um, again, congenital abnormalities that, uh, you know, are, are generally cases where the individual would not survive. And you're not even talking about an individual in this scenario. You're talking about the idea that there's a whole group of people 
or beings out there that all have the same appearance, that all have some sort of a shortened neck or sunken head scenario going on. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, another source I was looking at here was uh, 1924's The Coasts of Illusion, a study of travel tales by author Carl B. Firestone. He brings up an argument made by 18th century French naturalist George uh, Louis L. Buffon, who says, well, what we could be looking at here are reports of body modification. Um, And uh, Buffon apparently compared it to certain known practices of neck and head elongation that you see in some groups 
Um, so I guess this argument is based a little bit in fact, but also I really can't put a lot of faith in this argument. Like, yes, well, there are cases where people have elongated the structure of the head or done, uh, you know, body modification of the neck or shoulders, I think more specifically the shoulders than the neck. Uh, but it's a stretch to go from there to the idea of people like pushing their their head down into their body. Yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I I can imagine a lot more somebody doing a body modification that could make it look like they had a face in their torso than that would, could make it look like they didn't have a head on their shoulders. Yeah. Oh, uh, another example. This one kind of goes back to uh, what we were just talking about earlier with warriors and warrior stances. In, in The Monstrous Races in Medieval Art and Thought, author John Block Friedman discusses the possibility that shields with faces on them or some sort of face-like motif on chest wear or armor might have also given this impression. So, mm. I mean, that's that's another case where, again, it may be one instance of this being observed and then it gets, uh, uh, the story gets told, it gets uh, translated, it gets passed on, and it becomes people with faces on their chest. Yeah, again, that somehow seems to be the kind of thing that feels more plausible to me that it would that it could be a misinterpretation seeing from a distance of uh, uh, or a misinterpretation of the original report of certain appearances of like shields or armor or clothing that could look like a face on on the body. Yeah. Now, another possible theory here is the uh, you might think of as the primate theory. And that's the idea that what we're really looking at here are very distorted descriptions of chimpanzees or bonobos rather than human beings. And uh, interestingly enough, this was actually cited in the 19th century by none other than Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton. Uh, he, he speaks of, uh, of the, quote, savage exaggeration of ape sightings, uh, saying specifically pointing out the, the Blumier's uh, as being uh, the kind of thing that, okay, well, this is just based on somebody uh, exaggerating a sighting they they made of an ape, a bonobo, a chimpanzee, or something like that. And you can, uh, I've seen some examples too where people bring up, people will bring up uh, photographs of, of uh, chimps or bonobos and point to like the stance, the sort of um, basic body morphology of uh, the primate in question and say like, well, if you're looking at it from the right angle, this could lead into an interpretation of a creature with um, without a head or a creature even with a face positioned somewhere in the torso. That you could understand how you could see an ape and imagine maybe uh, as a certain posture that its head was lower than it was. It's hard to imagine how that could be mistaken for like a people living in, in, in a certain land. Yeah. So like I say, any one of these theories, uh, I, I think, is not strong enough to support <laughs> the general uh, principle here. I feel like in inevitably you're dealing with a whole lot of different ideas and just in general, like the stickiness of the concept once it's been introduced, uh, where people just continue to repeat it, even if logically they think, well, this probably isn't possible. And of course, no matter which idea you end up gravitating to, or if you reject all of them, there's still something undeniable about all of these stories in that there is just an undeniable xenophobic and racist nature uh, in, of depicting the people of foreign lands as monsters or something monster-like, as something less than indifferent from human beings. Earlier, I referred in passing to the age of discovery, but of course it wasn't just an age of discovery. Uh, it was an age of, of conquest and exploitation. 
um, and you know the wages of which um, have have never ceased. And so this is very much a part of of any uh, you know rational analysis of, of this scenario. I found a very good source on this uh, that was discussing this monstrous alterity in early modern travel accounts. This was published in two thousand and eight from the journal uh, L'Esprit Créateur or the the Creative Spirit. And in it, uh, in this particular article, author Lynn Ramey links these accounts of belly-mouthed and one-legged beings to broader theological discussions about whether or not the occupants of foreign lands were truly human with souls. Quote, Eventually and inevitably, Augustine's ambiguous conclusion that the monstrous races either were men and should be saved or were not men became untenable. Augustine might well suggest that Blemier and skiopods, or one-legged men, are questionably human based on their physical bodies, but the inhabitants of the Americas resembled very much their conquerors. Apologists for Christian colonialists came to the conclusion that they were in fact men without souls, born from spontaneous generation but not descended from Adam. Equating some ethnic groups with soulless animals lifted the onus of conversion from the colonists and easily justified oppression and exploitation, unfortunately proving to be a line of thought that unfortunately proved extremely difficult to eradicate. Yeah, and I sense that it, it, there's a kind of uh, uncomfortable thing that that's all throughout reading these accounts of uh, people with these impossible bodies, uh, e- even going back to, you know, accounts from the ancient world where it wasn't necessarily part of a uh, an explicit attempt to justify colonial enterprise. Mm-hmm. Even in those cases, you can just sense a kind of uh, a a lack of a universal sense of humanity. Yeah. You know, the, there's this kind of uh, feeling that like, well, whatever those other people are living very far away, you know, I don't know if they're even really beings like we are. In fact, here are even some strange claims about their bodies that uh, that could not possibly be true. And so th- that just kind of leads to the suggestion that like, well, I don't know, people from from far away are not really people. So anyway, I don't know. Th- there's a quality that's always just made me feel a little uh a little uneasy when reading these uh, these accounts of like uh, men with faces in their torsos and stuff like that uh, that that isn't really there for like the gods and fantastical beings, but these ancient accounts about uh, alleged peoples of this kind. Uh, and I guess I didn't always know exactly what it was that made me feel that way, but I, but I guess it is is some kind of implicit understanding of this that it is a, a way of questioning the full humanity of of peoples elsewhere yeah yeah because if you populate the the edges of your known world with monsters well then it's 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 more appropriate that you go out and exploit and conquer those lands right uh as alluded to in that quote you you don't have any kind of spiritual obligation to those people because in your view they're not people and so forth all right. Well, did we we stick the landing on a nice depressing finish to these uh, episodes on uh, headless uh, creatures and fantasy and um, and uh, fiction and mythology and legend and so forth? I guess so. That's a sad place to end, but an important thing to understand. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to admit the examples from the last episode are definitely more fun, where you just have a situation where some sort of a divine being uh, gets into a fight with a god or an argument with a god and just has their head uh, stoved in or or has their head cut off by a god, but then their body finds a way to manifest a face, manifest nipple eyes and a big gaping mouth in the belly. 
or even these ideas that we discussed in this episode of like the headless Avengers, you know, the, the, the rolling the Thompson gunner's head is gone, but still he keeps going. The you know, headless horsemen, uh, they have no head anymore. And yet the, the body continues. There's some sort of like um, level of volition that is still um, that is still burning in these um, mythological, folkloric and fictional beings that can't be extinguished even by removing the head, a thing that we all know uh, is is the definite end of any mortal being. Also, please look up scallops and their their yes. 200 Betty Davis eyes. That's right. Look up the scallops. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Lister Mail on Mondays, short-form Monster Factor Artifact on Wednesdays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you use social media, follow us, look us up. Um, we are STBYM Podcast on Instagram. If you use um, Facebook, there's the discussion module there. Seek it out. It's a Facebook group. Ask to join. Uh, if you can guess the name of this podcast, you can get in. And if you can't, you don't belong there anyway. And, uh, oh, if you use Discord, there's also a Discord, um, what, discussion group? A Discord uh, channel. I forget what the terminology is, but Server? we're on there. Server? Yeah. Server? If you would like to be in that Discord server uh, or whatever uh, we're supposed to call it, uh, just shoot us an email and we will send you the link. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.